Father, thank you, Lord, for a warm room, a crowd with warm hearts. Father, your word before us, uh, just the many blessings that we all know in our individual lives, material and spiritual, and uh, the, the loving care you have for us in the church, both in this body and in others we join with. Uh, these are th- things, Father, we can take for granted sometimes and overlook, and I thank you, Father, for it. And I thank you, Father, for the uh, faithfulness of this room particularly, that they would be here in a weekly way, ready to hear your word, year in and year out. And they do it, Father, uh, in devotion to you and into what they will learn, Father. They do it because they care, like every believer does, to sit at your feet and to know these things. And they give me, Father, encouragement as well to come and be prepared and to do the work you've called me to do. So, Father, it's a blessing for me, and I pray, Father, through the word it would be a blessing for them as well tonight that they've come. I pray, Father, that those who would hear this later would likewise be blessed. The whole work of what we do here, Father, would be under your care and under your hand and according to your spirit. We acknowledge, Father, that's how we do anything of any merit in our walk. It's because you've called us and prepared us. You've equipped us and you've taught us. And uh, this is just one night as an example, Father. Thank you, Lord, that we can learn about Saul tonight, a man who may confuse us at times, a man whose story runs the gamut from from humility to pride and from great opportunity to great disappointment. And so many opportunities for us to see ourselves in the story, Lord, at different points in our own life. Let us begin that tonight to understand better who he is, how you can use him and remain faithful to him. And in that, Father, let us be encouraged in how you work with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now Israel is going to get the king that they have wanted, a man that perfectly suits their desire to be ruled like all the other nations are ruled. And so now we enter into chapter 10 as this prophet Samuel anoints this new king. And I'm going to do this chapter in small bites comparatively as opposed to how I might normally do it. So let's look at chapter 10, verse 1 initially. Then Samuel took the flask of oil poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? You remember last week we learned Saul is young, he's strong, he's tall, he's handsome, he seems to have a good heart. There's some indication early in his walk here that he's a pretty humble guy, conscientious sort. And in a sense, he's too perfect. Too perfect for this job. And what I mean by that is, historically speaking, Saul's selection runs contrary to God's usual pattern. God usually doesn't select the one who's perfect, the one who has all the right attributes. God normally selects the least obvious option, the one you didn't see coming. But Saul is the obvious candidate, according to human expectations. He's the Ishmael in this story, not the Isaac. He's the Esau, not the Jacob. And it's Saul's perfection, his perfect suitability for the job that becomes our first clue that the Lord is up to something unusual here in elevating Saul to king. That's the story we're going to study in this chapter and really throughout the remainder of the book of 1 Samuel. The story of Saul, and it's a story that's bigger than merely Israel getting the king they wanted. Our second clue comes also from last week when we learned that Saul is a Benjamite. Back in Genesis 49, at the end of the life of Jacob, when he's pronouncing a prophetic blessing upon each of the sons of Jacob, all 12 of the sons of Israel, he comes to Judah, fourth in that order, and he speaks to Judah's future, and he says this about Judah, speaking of the tribe, in Genesis 49.8, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now the prophecy that Jacob spoke here concerning his son Judah and all that came in that tribe centers on his right to rule the others. You notice it began by saying that all his brothers would bow down to him. This is in similar way to what Joseph saw in the dream back in in the earlier parts of Genesis. So it's an indication that he would have a preeminent role among his brothers as a leader within the nation of Israel. And then you see other signs, uh, the fact that he's compared to a lion, and even now we still say a lion is the king of the beasts, and that's a similar sense here. Also, the scepter, that's a symbol of royal authority. It's said to never depart Judah's hand. And also, neither would a king's ruling staff be relinquished by Judah to any other tribe. So in simple terms, Judah, and Judah alone, he says, would rule over Israel. And that rule would continue... Jacob says, from generation to generation until Shiloh comes. And the term Shiloh is messianic. It refers to the coming Messiah, to Jesus Christ. So in verse 10 of what I read out of Genesis 49, Jacob said that once the tribe of Judah receives the right to rule, it can never be taken away from Judah. And it will eventually go to the Messiah himself, who therefore must come from Judah if this prophecy is to be correct. And once he retains the right to rule, he'll never relinquish it to anyone. But when the time came for Israel to receive their first king, the Lord selects a Benjamite, not a member of Judah. Now, does that mean Saul is an illegitimate king? Or does it mean perhaps the Lord is making a mistake here, or that he's going back on his word? Well, none of those conclusions are correct. Saul is very much a legitimate king. He's being anointed here, according to the word of the Lord, by his prophet. And he's going to rule with full authority just as any other earthly king would, and the Lord is certainly not making a mistake in selecting him. That's obvious. Then why is it happening? Well, the Lord is selecting Saul as a king as an exception to prove the rule. One day the Lord's going to anoint a member of Judah as king, just as he has promised. And when that day comes, only Judah may rule from that point forward. But that day hadn't come yet. So the Lord may appoint anyone to be a king, unless and until he appoints someone from the tribe of Judah, and then he can't go back from ever having anyone other than Judah. So this is the first king. This will be a first king from someone other than the tribe of Judah. And that begs the question once more, why start somewhere else? Saul's reign is going to serve as an epilogue to the time of Judges and as prologue to the time of the kings of Judah. Judges, you remember, was this time in Israel's history when men did what was right in their own eyes, as we know. And this moment, as Samuel passes the reins of authority from him as judge to this new man, Saul, as king, that's really the final act of the period of Judges. And in this final act, the nation has demanded that they have a king like all the other nations, perfectly in keeping with a period of history in which people did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, this is sort of the quintessential act of that period. If you needed a poster to represent the time of Judges, it's the people saying, we want to be ruled by a king, not by God. And that's how the the period has come to an end. And they want to experience what all the world gets to experience when they have kings. And so God gives them who they want not who God would prefer. A man who, like all the Israelites for that matter, is given a special opportunity, called into a special position, and has all the advantages God could offer. And in the end, this man will squander that opportunity by going into idolatry and in greed, just as the Israelites themselves did under the same circumstances. 
So we're watching the Lord here concluding the time of Judges with this final example to the people that when you act according to your own desires, you get what you're asking for, and he doesn't mean that obviously in a positive sense. Saul is going to be anointed, he's going to be equipped to rule with the power of the Spirit, but his life is going to serve as an example of what happens when you seek according to the flesh instead of according to the Spirit. Personally, his life will be a testimony to that. He will be a man who is seen as seeking for the flesh rather than working in the Spirit of God. And collectively, the nation of Israel, having chosen this man to rule over them, will see the fruit of that same problem of having sought for the flesh, a man who looks the part rather than seeking to be ruled by God. So in verse 1, we see this beginning, Samuel anointing Saul as king with a flask of oil. This moment comes in the morning following when Samuel and Saul met on the rooftop and did all of that conversation. We saw that last week. And you have to think at this point, Saul's head is still spinning with the news of all of this. It's got to come out of nowhere to him. Last thing he had on his mind was that he would be a king in a nation that had never had a king. But Samuel presses on here, and what he does now at this point in the anointing is he's symbolizing the empowerment of the Holy Spirit by pouring this oil on Saul's head. Now, this is not the moment in which the Spirit comes upon Saul. We'll see that here in a minute. But it's a symbolizing moment. It shows that this is coming, that the Lord intends to bring the Spirit to him in in a powerful way to confirm his role as king. Prior to this moment, in the history of Israel, only priests and the tabernacle itself were ever anointed by oil. So this is the first time anyone outside of the office of priest has been anointed. And now you see a new office, the office of king, being one in which that person is installed by an anointing of oil as a picturing of God's anointing by his spirit. The oil is always a picture in that sense. When the actual spirit himself comes, he will empower this man to serve as king. And that's being pictured here. Saul must have been wondering at the time that Samuel gave him the whole pitch on the rooftop, how could he know it was true? You wonder if Saul was a bit questioning, maybe a bit doubtful that everything that he's being told is actually true. And if you think about it, how would he know for sure? How does he know for sure that Samuel's right? How does he know that Samuel's not just putting one over on him? How can this man, Saul, know confidently what God is planning to do? Well, Samuel says Saul will rule over God's inheritance, verse 1. And unfortunately, and depending on what version of the Bible you're looking at, almost certainly your version has a rendering similar to the one I read, a very shortened version of what Samuel actually said. We know that because in the Septuagint and in other more accurate manuscripts of this book, we find the full statement that was spoken by Samuel. It's not the one that I read. Here's what the Septuagint says. Then Samuel took a small container of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head. Samuel kissed him and said... The Lord has chosen you to lead his people, Israel. You will rule over the Lord's people, and you will deliver them from the power of the enemies who surround them. This will be your sign that the Lord has chosen you as leader over his inheritance. That's the full version. And there's actually a mistake that a copyist made in this situation, and it reflects the way the eye can go back from one text to another as you're copying, and it can jump to another phrase that's similar to the one you were last on and and not notice that you just jumped over a whole section between them. So if you look at the verse I just read, he says, the Lord has chosen you to lead his people. That's how it begins. And it ends by him saying, the Lord has chosen you as leader over his inheritance. You have in your English version, those two statements sandwiched together and nothing between them. So a copyist somewhere along the way saw the word chosen, chosen and jumped over and didn't copy the rest of it. 
thankfully, the Lord in his sovereignty made sure we still had surviving copies of the full text, so we're not missing it. It's evidence to you about what you may often hear, which is that your English Bible is not inspired. Only the original text is. And God's sovereignty ensures that we don't lose this text. It's still out there, and we find it when we go looking for it. So it's never been lost. But it's important that we note the difference here today because of what's in there. Saul is told by Samuel that you're going to receive signs to confirm that what I have told you is true. And this answers the question I raised, which is what if Saul had been doubting? What if he had been worried that what he is hearing is not true? God anticipated that, so he made a series of signs. That's what follows next in the text. Each of the signs that we're going to look at here are signs that are built around certain circumstances. These circumstances are so specific that when they come to pass, they could only mean that the prophet had access to the mind of God in order to know these things in advance. And in that way, they validate the prophet's word concerning all that God has told him to speak, including that Saul is being anointed king. But beyond just the fact that these signs prove Samuel knows what he's talking about, there's a bigger message behind them, because the signs themselves have their own symbolic message to Saul concerning his mission as king. So even as they provide confirmation to Saul, they provide counsel to Saul. So we're going to look at each of these signs in turn so that we can see the symbolic message intended for Saul. The first one is in verse 2. When you go for me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, What shall I do about my son? So the first sign is connected to Saul's search for his donkeys. You remember that's what brought him to meet Samuel in the first place. So as Saul journeys home from the place he met Samuel in Shiloh, it said he's going to encounter two men. Now these are not going to be back at his home. This is somewhere out on the road. Two men walking along the road. And as he encounters them, they're going to raise this whole conversation and they're going to say, by the way, your donkeys have been found, as we heard. But then they're going to tell him that his father's concern is now the preeminent issue in the home. Just as Saul himself had suggested when they were out searching, he had said, if we don't get this done quick, dad's going to get worried. Sure enough, dad's worried. He says, what shall I do about my son? In Hebrew, the question's actually a little different. In Hebrew, it's much more concise. It's what of my son, which probably means what becomes of my son. So Saul's going to encounter these two men near the place where Rachel was buried. Remember Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob, the one he had to work so hard for? Rachel's most known for giving Jacob his two favorite sons, Joseph and Benjamin. In fact, if you may remember, Rachel died in childbirth giving birth to Benjamin. And it is, of course, Benjamin who becomes the father of the Benjamites, and Saul is a Benjamite. What's the lesson here? Well, Saul's responsibility for his father's estate is the first part of the sign. He's no longer to be concerned for his father's estate. The Lord is going to care for Saul's father, even in matters as trivial as finding his donkeys for him. That's an important relief for a son in a culture that saw the son as bearing a disproportionate responsibility, a special responsibility to care for the father of the estate. So Saul might have had hesitation to run off and become king while his father was still alive. This is now no longer a concern, or that would be the indication from the sign. God can take care of Saul's father. But that's just the beginning of this. The Lord has appointed this Benjamite to guard not his father's estate anymore, but the Lord's inheritance, we're told. In verse 1. Remember, Benjamin was the only son of Jacob who was born in the promised land, which is Israel's inheritance. The other 11 sons were all born outside the land and only came into the land when Jacob returned. 
So, interestingly, the Lord has selected a Benjamite to steward the inheritance in which his tribe was born. So, in a sense, we could say Saul was the natural heir of the land since his forefathers were born in it. But does the Lord's inheritance come by natural means? Is it made available to those who qualify by earthly human means, as in being born in the right place at the right time? Or does it require faith in the promises of God? Well, obviously we know the answer, right? Even the the number of men that Saul meets on this road reminds us of the dividing line between all men, that is, those who are of the natural versus those who are of faith. And the number two in Scripture is the number of division. It would seem as though we're hearing Saul again will be the exception to prove the rule. He is a man who has the natural right to inherit the land by virtue of being a descendant of the only tribe who was born in the land, but it won't be by nature that he will have the right for this inheritance. It must be by the Spirit, not by might. The second sign, verses 3 and 4. Then you will go on further from there, and you will come as far as the oak of Tabor. And there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. Once again, the specifics of this are so precise that when it all transpires, clearly it's evidence God is at work in all that Samuel was saying. But now to the details of what he said. He says Saul's going to journey a little further and he's going to come to the Oak of Tabor. There he's going to meet now three men. And these three men have been going to worship at Bethel. Bethel is second only to Jerusalem in importance in the Bible in terms of Israel's history. The only city or place in the Old Testament mentioned more often than Bethel is Jerusalem. It's a place that had significance to all the patriarchs and it still carried significance here today. Obviously people go there to worship it says. These men are going to be carrying items for the sacrifice. That's why they have these specific items. Goats, bread, and wine. This is the animal sacrifice. These are the tithe offerings. This is the the wine offerings. These are the things men would have brought with them as gifts to God, as means of sacrifice, both for atonement and for tithing as they worship at the altar. When they encounter Saul, however, they're going to give two of the three loaves of the bread to Saul, and it's clear that they're doing this unsolicited. There's no indication here that Saul has to ask for them. He's told up front, you're going to get them. And he's going to accept them, it says, from their hand. Now, these foods being reserved for the Lord as part of worship, now find their way into Saul's hand. Obviously, that's a blessing for Saul, at least in the simple sense that it shows people of Israel are going to support him in his needs as king. But the fact that this provision was intended for the Lord before being redirected to Saul, it puts a dark cloud over the transaction. It prophetically indicates Saul will turn the opportunity to guard the inheritance of the people into a chance to enrich himself. He will abuse his power. He will seek to glorify himself at the expense of serving the Lord. And that's exactly how Saul's life plays out in the end. We'll see that, of course, as we study further. Finally, Bethel is the place where Jacob saw the ladder coming down from heaven, you may remember. And in that moment, Jacob made a deal with the Lord. I'm just going to take you back to that moment, Genesis 28, 19 through 22. It says, Jacob called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, And I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be my God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. 
You may remember this if you study Genesis. This is the, the Jacob's Ladder moment. Jacob making this, this vow before he leaves the land to go to see Uncle Laban. He made his willingness to obey and follow the Lord conditional on the Lord's willingness to care for him. Now, the Lord's not interested in deals. And though Jacob appears to be making one, or at least in his own mind he thought he was making one, rest assured there was no deal being made here. There's no quid pro quo. God was going to do what God was going to do anyway. He'd already promised as much to Jacob. The Lord's faithfulness to Jacob had nothing to do with Jacob's faithfulness back to him. It was because of a promise the Lord made to Abraham and then Isaac and then on to Jacob that he would care for them. So, in the sense that they have done all of this trading of loaves of bread at the point of Bethel, it suggests the second sign is indicating that Saul will ultimately be unfaithful. Nevertheless, the Lord will remain faithful to Saul. That though Saul's life is a story of shipwrecked faith, nonetheless, he is a man saved by faith, and so the Lord will favor him nonetheless. He will be faithful to him despite his disobedience. And that also is true in Saul's life. Finally, the third sign, verse 5, Afterward you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. So Saul eventually is going to travel a little further on the map from Bethel to this hill of God, which is Gibeon. Gibeon is the hill of God. It's a very short distance, a little further southwest. And there he is met by a group of prophets prophesying. Saul's Saul's going to join them. And we're told the Spirit of the Lord will come upon Saul. And as a result of this coming upon Saul, he will also prophesy. Now the simple message here is simply to confirm to Saul that you've received the anointing of the Spirit. That much is obvious, right? That's the ultimate confirmation for him that he's become king. He's received the Spirit just as the anointing of oil prophetically pictured. And by that Spirit equipping, he's now ready for every good work in serving the Lord as king. But as with the first two signs, the location of this event foreshadows a sorry end to Saul's reign as king. Gibeon was originally a Hivite city when Joshua brought the people into the land. And again, you may remember the story from Joshua. As the Israelites entered the land under Joshua, they had been told by the Lord not to make a covenant with any of the peoples of the land that they were to wipe them all out. Despite that, the people living in the city of Gibeon, the Hivites, managed to trick Israel into forming a covenant with them nonetheless. That covenant prevented Joshua and subsequent generations of Israel from conquering that city. In fact, it required that the Israelites defend that city, which Joshua ultimately does at one point. Nevertheless, Joshua enslaved the people to serve Israel, and later Joshua designated Gibeon as a a Levite city. But nonetheless, it had to remain Hivite, and it had the Hivites living in it, even up to the time of Saul. Now, at some point, though, after Saul becomes king, he decides to break this covenant with the people in Gibeon. He conquers the city, and he attempts to put all the Hivites living in the city to death. You hear about this in 2 Samuel, looking back on the event. 2 Samuel 21, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So this town and what Saul tries to do in conquering it, uh, going against the, the solemn covenant that Israel had made with them, it becomes a legacy to his greedy ambitions. 
Ultimately, the Gibeonites, because of, of Saul's breaking of the covenant, ultimately David has to do something to rectify the situation. Otherwise, the nation is going to remain under this famine that God has instituted for their disobedience to that covenant. And so when it becomes time for David to do something about it, he goes to the Gibeonites, some who were still alive. Uh, Saul had not succeeded in wiping them all out. There were still some there. And he goes to them and offers them a chance for retribution for Saul's violation of the covenant. Essentially, name your price. They call for seven of Saul's living descendants to be executed as retribution. And David hands them over to the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites hang all of them and return the bodies to the Israelites. And then David buries those seven descendants of Saul and he exhumes the bones of Saul, having been buried long before, and the bones of his son uh, Jonathan, and buries the lot of them in Benjamin, in Benjamin territory. So Saul receives the Spirit of the Lord in the beginning, and in the end he dies without the Spirit, you'll find later in the book, And so, in a sense, he's back in the place he started when he's buried. Back in the ground where all this began. The tribe of Benjamin, in other words, has had its chance and its time of king. And then that opportunity is buried with Saul as a result of his disobedience. Once again, he is the exception that proves the rule that not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So, in all respects, Saul's life will serve as a testimony in the negative sense For what happens when we go against the will and purpose of God and what we seek? God has, in a sense, allowed the Israelites to have what they want, only to show them the error of their thinking. And we should also point out, as we move now back into the text, that the Lord does not set them up for failure. It would be very easy for us to say, well, the Lord just tricked them by putting someone in place, that then the Lord pulls the rug out from under Saul so that when he trips, he can blame the Israelites. But nothing like that happens. He gives them a man who is set up fully for success. He has everything going for him, including a fairly humble and and modest heart to begin with. The problem is he's not fulfilling the purpose God had in what he's about to do through Judah, and so he has no hope to survive his own heart turning him against God. We'll see all of this play out through the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, but that's the opening salvo as you see him anointed. You see the the process laid out through these signs, the the future laid out. And so it comes to pass, as Samuel said, these three signs play out, verses 7 through 13. It shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him and the spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. It came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets that the people said to one another, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man there said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. So Samuel tells Saul, as as he's encountering all these moments, uh, particularly the final sign with the prophets, he says, Just do whatever the occasion requires. And I think it's particularly regarding the prophesying moment, although I, I suspect he meant it in general. When the guys give you the bread, take the bread. When they ask about the donkeys, you know, hear them out. In other words, play along with what God is about to orchestrate in front of you. Don't object. Don't uh, resist. Follow the Lord. And as those experiences take place, 
And as they conclude, Samuel tells Saul, I'll meet you again in Gilgal. We'll offer sacrifices and then we'll, we'll go from there. And with that, he dismisses Saul. And then it says, all that Samuel prophesied takes place. But as he sets out on the journey, you notice there's that important moment that takes place near the beginning. We're told the Lord changes Saul's heart. This is in response to what Samuel said would happen. He would become a new man. Now the wording here leaves very little doubt concerning what's happened. To change a heart means that the Lord takes a person's spiritual state from that of the natural and brings it into new life by the Spirit. That's the sense of the meaning wherever you find it in Scripture. In fact, there really is no other sense offered in scripture to change a heart is not simply a matter of changing someone's mind or giving them a better motivation or encouraging them to think differently about their circumstances those are modern takes on the thought the thought scripturally always is referencing the spiritual state of a person the heart being the in the hebrew mind the center of all life for the individual thought emotion and physical life is all seen as being in the heart from a hebrew point of view So now we ask the question, what does Samuel indicate? What is he trying to indicate to us by this statement at this point in his narrative? In other words, Samuel, the author, chose to add this comment here at this point. Well, I think first Samuel is trying to explain what's coming next. That is that when Saul prophesies by this presence of the Lord's Spirit, we're seeing that this man is already being changed by God and prepared for this opportunity. This man's being prepared for this intimate experience with the Lord. And that change involves him coming to the point we would today say coming to faith, coming to a, a saving knowledge of the Lord. Remember earlier in the story, he didn't even know who Samuel was. He, had, he seemed to be far removed from the spiritual life of Israel. Now he's coming into an intimate knowledge of God. More importantly, these details prepare us to interpret an event that's going to come much later in this story, in chapter 16, when we're going to find the Spirit of the Lord departing from Saul at a point in Saul's ministry. We're going to look at the significance of that when we get there, but suffice to say, if Samuel had not separated in his narrative the two moments, the moment of the changed heart, versus the moment of the Spirit coming upon Saul. If if he had not separated these two here, then it would have made it much more difficult for us to understand the meaning of the departure of the Spirit in chapter 16. You notice his changed heart is not coincident with the coming of the Spirit. Not in the sense of the coming upon, the, the equipping, the prophesying moment. Those are two different moments. So it is clear that his change didn't require the presence of the Spirit to be upon him, it happened independent of that. Now, I'm not saying it didn't happen without the Spirit, don't get me wrong, but this notion of the equipping or the anointing of the Spirit is distinct in Scripture from the idea of the Spirit's salvitic work in the heart. It is a New Testament dispensation that those two are uniquely combined that we both believe and receive the Spirit in the same moment. In the Old Testament, though, to know the Lord by the Spirit didn't necessitate a coming upon a person of the Spirit or a retaining of the Spirit on that person. That was a distinct and different moment. And you see them separated here for that reason. Later in the New Testament, the two are combined in a way that is special for the church. We'll come back to this, as I said, in chapter 16 and have a more engaged, a more in-depth conversation about the meaning of that departure moment and what it says about Saul. For now, you just need to understand that Saul's heart has changed. He has been made new by God's Spirit. So when Saul reaches the point of prophesying with the prophets in verse 11, we're told that the people who watched this happen, there must have been a crowd there of some size, obviously, they're amazed. They're amazed to see a man they knew as simply the son of Kish, some tall, strapping young man, a farmer's kid, 
probably didn't know much about religion or seem much interested in it. Next thing you know, he's hobnobbing with the prophets and he's speaking like they do. And they're stunned by the whole appearance. Prophets generally are not the most glamorous lot in Scripture. Sackcloth and all. The book of Hebrews says that those who were prophets in the Old Testament would have struck a rather pathetic pose. They were always mistreated. They, they went around in sackcloth and so on. And, and then you have Saul now. So there's probably this stark contrast between the young, tall, handsome, most handsome in Israel, Saul, and a bunch of old guys with scraggly beards who've been doing this job for a while. The whole thing must have looked rather out of place. Cognitive dissonance was taking place in the crowd. And that's the incredulous response. Saul's not a prophet now, is he? Because he doesn't really look like he's set up to be doing this kind of work. Saul prophesying is clear evidence to Saul and everyone else that the Lord's Spirit is present and is working in him. And that outward display was intended to demonstrate to the people that the Lord had indeed selected Saul. It's going to be one of several signs the Lord's going to give to the people. It's not the last one. And it's in keeping with how the Lord typically works by His Spirit, right? The Spirit of the Lord is typically united with the flesh of men for that purpose of demonstrating the anointing and the approval of God. That's how the Spirit is showing His work in the people generally as a sense of approval. That's how we're told to understand the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 14, 12 through 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians is that the Spirit is given as God desires according to his will to the church for the edification of the whole as evidence of the Lord's work in terms of fruit and as a means of edifying through service in the body. And in a sense you see that happening here. Saul's going to serve the greater community of Israel through the power God enables in this equipping and by the fruit of this anointing, the prophesying, he is demonstrating God's presence in his life. Now notice in verse 12 someone in the crowd says, Who is their father? The question means, where is this power coming from? Who is their source? And of course the answer is the Lord in heaven. And that is the answer that's supposed to come from this scene. That's the whole point of the scene, to prompt that question and to lead them to that answer. Unfortunately, the people make the wrong conclusion about what they're seeing. They don't come to the right conclusion. They do not understand that this is a sign that Saul is their king. They think it's a sign that Saul's become a prophet. They assume as much. Now, time will tell that they're wrong, and they're all going to know they were wrong sooner or later. That's why this becomes a saying. It becomes a proverb, or it becomes a comical saying, because someone had made the mistake of thinking that Saul could ever have been a prophet. And it's memorialized in the idiom, Saul is among the prophets. It's meant to be ironic. Every time somebody would say that, it would be a point of laughter, because they realized how stupid they were to think that in light of how it actually turned out. And I think it became increasingly ironic throughout the reign of Saul because the more you saw this man's heart, the more the thought that he was actually a prophet made less and less sense. We ever thought this guy was a prophet? That's the sense of the statement that Samuel's making here. After this moment, Saul proceeds to the high place because that's where Samuel said he would meet him. And then a conversation develops while they're waiting for Samuel. Verse 14. Now Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said to look for the donkeys. When we saw that they could not be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. Well, naturally, after Saul's uncle, who must have been there, of course, sees Saul playing with the prophets, he asks Saul, where did you go? As in, what has happened to you? And... Saul could have told him the whole story, obviously. But instead, he only mentions the parts about the donkeys. He only mentions, I left to see donkeys. I went to Samuel to find donkeys. Samuel told me they had been found. I come back. 
Now you could see this as an example of Saul's humility, and some say that. You could also see it as an example of his duplicity. That is, a careful politic in which he withholds information, gives what he needs, plays his cards close to his vest, isn't going to tell more than he has to. And I think both sides are probably true at some level. And you'll see examples of the the latter part of his nature coming up more and more in his reign as king. But now it's time for Samuel to announce to the rest of Israel who in fact is their king, since apparently they're not getting the point on their own. So in verse 17 we read, Therefore Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah, and he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God, who delivers you from all calamities and your distresses. You have said no, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Samuel begins the anointing moment, or the unveiling moment, I guess you might say, by reminding the people of why they're in this moment to begin with, how we came to this point. And he says, you remember it's the Lord who's been faithful all these years. It's the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. It's the Lord who's defended you. But nonetheless, you have rejected his authority. So you have brought yourself here, not because you have desired something good, but because you've desired something wrong in demanding a king over the Lord. And it's implying to the people nothing good is going to come from this decision. It's been forged in a desire to end the Lord's rule over his people rather than one to follow his will and honor him. And as such, you can't expect good to come from this. So it's going to be a problem. And so Samuel says to the people with this ominous tone, having given that introduction, it's now time to stand before the Lord, all of you by your clans and tribes and so on, so that I can give you what you asked for. Verse 20. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matrite family was taken. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people, from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in a book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. Saul also went to his house at Gibeah, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. But he kept silent. So at this point, you might expect Samuel would have just pointed to Saul. I love the thought of how this transpired, right? You you bring all the people together and you say, I'm here to give you your king. You think he might have just said, Okay, it's that guy right there. Because he knows who it is, but he doesn't do that. Saul rises to king in three steps. First, he's anointed by Samuel. We've seen that already. That indicates that the Lord has determined to elevate him into the position of king. So once the Lord has made that determination, we know it's going to happen. right? But that anointing, if you remember, was an entirely private affair between Saul and Samuel. No one else saw that. And even the prophesying has seemed to miss the mark because everyone just thinks it means he's a prophet. No one's picked up on the whole new king idea yet. So that's still yet to be unveiled. So now the time has come for the people to recognize that this new leader is Saul and his anointing was for that purpose. And the Lord orchestrates this public moment now in which Saul will be designated by Samuel as king. 
And he does it by lot. And this is intended to reflect the fact that it is still God at work making the determination. And a throwing of lots, uh, they're, they're basically a stone or, or bones that were cut with certain markings on them. Similar, I guess, to what we think of when we think of a dice, but different. But they would be throwing these lots, and the idea was that the lots would have the effect of ruling somebody out and selecting somebody else. Now, you wouldn't do that for the whole nation of Israel. It would take forever. So what they started with was tribes. We're going to pick which tribe first. That got just one out of 13. And then we're going to go down from tribes to families within the tribe. And there's only so many families in the tribe. And it takes a little while, but it's efficient enough that you can get down to one person. Sooner or later, you're down to the sons of Kish, and Saul is the one who is taken by lot. That's all intended to reflect for the people that Samuel's not acting on his own. That the Lord is working this process out. It also reminds us that there are no circumstances in life that are coincidental or luck. Right? Even in the throwing of dice, there's an outcome that's predetermined by God. Now, I'm not here to say that God wants us to go out and use dice in order to accomplish his will. And there's a biblical reason we can say that. It's not just because somebody thinks gambling's a problem. It's because that now that the Word of God is active and present in us through the Spirit of God, we're not reliant on those tools anymore. Those tools have been supplanted by something much better. But before that, this was the means God used, similar to burning bushes or other miraculous signs, dreams, and the like. Those things are what the writer of Hebrews is speaking of when he says, in many ways and in many portions, he has spoken to the prophets and the fathers. But now he speaks to us through his Son, that is the Word and the Spirit. This just demonstrates, though, the the providence of God at work in all of these details. Now, the funny part of the story, of course, is that when the lot fell for Saul, no one could find the guy because he's hiding. So the people start by asking Samuel, are we not seeing this guy because he doesn't live here yet? He's not born yet? We're still to wait for him to come, almost like the Messiah? That suggests that Saul's not well known. The people would have already known that he existed if they had known him at all. So he's something of a, a mysterious character. Samuel says that Saul is hiding among the baggage. And the word for baggage in Hebrew, just it's a general word. It can mean armory or furniture or jars. In this place, it's likely Saul was probably hiding behind the vessels that are used to hold the material for sacrificial worship at this altar. So you imagine this guy. And the funny part about it, of course, is he's a head taller than anybody. So here's this really tall guy trying to hide behind a bunch of jars because he doesn't want anyone to find him. Not the most auspicious way your king is anointed uh, to start his reign, right? It's comical, but it begs the question, why is he hiding? It would seem, and, and you could imagine probably a number of different reasons. It all would be speculation. But the fairest conclusion is that it's a combination of fear and humility. He's not seeking to elevate himself at this point. He's a little overwhelmed by the whole thing and not exactly sure what's going to happen next. So he's hiding, in a sense, hoping that he can just avoid the whole scene. And as the people go looking for him, they find him, and they pull him out from behind the jars. I mean, again, the whole thing feels like a kid's story. It's so funny. And then they're surprised to find out that this guy's a head taller than literally anyone else in Israel. It would be like the Tim Duncan of Israel all of a sudden, just showing up, and everybody has to look up at this guy. Think about the psychological effect of what God has done in giving them somebody that is so perfectly suited to feed the flesh of their desire. They must look upon this guy and assume immediately, how can this guy not be the one that God has chosen? He's just too perfect for the part. I mean, we want a king that's tall, but my goodness, look at the man. He's just huge. This is wonderful. And it leads him to the spontaneous, long live the king. This is the first confirmation to us Not really the first, actually, but a further confirmation to us that the Lord's plan has been to appeal to the fleshly desires of these people. And now you see it being successful, right? They are taken by his physique. Do you notice that? 
Samuel feeds their flesh by saying, See, there's no one else like this guy. You imagine what their response would have been if some really weak, short, ugly guy had come out from behind the vessels? You have to imagine their collective... (sighs) And, of course, that's driving home the point that what they wanted, they're getting. And God has sort of amped it up a little bit, to borrow the movie phrase. He's dialed it up to 11. He's sort of giving them what they wanted in such spades that they're completely overwhelmed with what they're seeing in their flesh. Now, to give them a little credit here, he was selected by Lot. So they already know he's been confirmed by the Lord. So I'm not saying that they are rushing into their own desire independent of God's direction. They know this is who God wanted. They're just so overwhelmed that God gave them exactly what they were hoping for. I wonder what the response might have been if their lots had fallen on that weak, comely, short fellow, whoever it might have been, who would have come out from behind there, right? Would they have been so quick to embrace him? Probably not. Yeah, like the one that Isaiah spoke of, right, in terms of the Messiah. And in time, what's going to happen is their fleshly impulses here will prove to be their undoing. And and that's what this whole story is leading toward. So Samuel tells the people, the ordinance is the king. Those are the rules he said would guide having a king, what a king gets, which is basically everything he wants. They're probably very similar to what Samuel told the people the first time when they said they wanted a king. And the people will just have to serve him whatever he asks. Then Saul goes back to his home in Gilbeah, which is only about three miles north of the present old city of Jerusalem. So if you've ever been to Jerusalem and you go into the old city, present day old city of Jerusalem, you can be in that city and you can see Gilbea. It's about three miles from the old city. You can see it clearly. It's a suburb of the city of Jerusalem today, basically, in the larger city of Jerusalem. And in a sense, then, you can say Samuel was really close, wasn't he? He was so close to where the seed of David ultimately set up shop. And yet he misses the mark. He was God's choice, yes, but he was a choice made in response to a people's sinful desire. And as I said, he then becomes the exception that ultimately will prove the rule. That God knew that Saul needed more than mere popular support to reign. And so he's preparing this first with his looks and by lots and by anointing. And then lastly, we see he's going to make sure that Saul has the military might to consolidate power and to establish his reign in the people. And then from there, it's a downhill slide. You notice here at the very end, the Lord inclines the hearts of valiant men who will support and defend their new king, and they accompany Saul home. But then to counter that, you hear that not all is well in this new kingdom. You have worthless fellows who decide that this can't be the right choice. Immediately, Saul is faced with opposition. I wonder why they would be opposed to such a good-looking tall guy. The only answer I can come up with is jealousy or the fact that he seems so meek and unwilling to take the reins, they had some concern about his bravery. As you're going to see in the rest of the story, the Lord is committed to Saul. He remains committed to Saul. Saul is the anointed man of God. Those who oppose the anointed man of God, God will oppose them. You're going to see that reflected in David's own attitude towards Saul, even though Saul's trying to kill him at a point in time. But he is a man after the people's choosing. He is not a man after God's own heart. And nevertheless, he's going to defend Saul against these worthless characters along the way. Lastly, think we hear that Saul does not choose to act against them or say anything against them. What we're hearing at the end of 10 is that Saul is not without wisdom. And again, this proves what we said earlier, that he starts with everything on his side. He's not a guy who's incapable of doing the job well. He, he is wisely overlooking this opposition at, for the time. Because like any new ruler, he has to consolidate power first and learn who his friends and his enemies are. There'll be a time to deal with these people later. They're not in a position to attack him, and he's not in a position or need to defend himself just yet. 
So he's going to bide his time. That in itself reflects his wisdom. But this is a man who ultimately will not rest in that wisdom and not rely on the Spirit of God. We're going to see that more clearly as we go on. So let's end there. We'll come back to this next week. Let's go to prayer. Once again, dear Father, I thank you, Father, that you can work in the lives of men and women who have nothing to offer, Father, and whose flesh is a constant uh, source of, of trial. And uh, Father, that speaks to me and everyone I know. Father, that is the state of humanity, and we, we acknowledge that before you. And we acknowledge that, that you have chosen to strive with men, not because we des- you, you need us or because we deserve your time and, and, and your personal relationship with us, Father, but because of your love, first for your son and for your promises to him, and then, first, and then secondly to those, Father, you have called by faith into your family. Uh, we are so blessed, Father, by that call, and we're so thankful for it. And uh, we see a man like Saul, Father, as, an evidence, as evidence again of how you can take someone from out of their circumstances, change their heart for no merit of their own, and do so, Father, for purposes you have orchestrated to suit you and to suit your glory. And even as we may trip up and fail to, to uh, satisfy all the, the demands and expectations that come with that relationship, nonetheless, Father, you are faithful and how thankful we are for that as well. Lord, we also ask that you would help us learn from a man like Saul so that we would not repeat the mistakes he makes, things we'll study later. Things, Father, that remind us that, that we can all turn astray if we are not diligently devoted to who you are and to your word and to your spirit's work in us. Help us to remember that, Father. Help us to be steadfast in our following of you. Thank you for our night of fellowship in the, in the word, Father, and send us home safely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.